Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Well, today is July 29th. It's 2021. And hey, everybody, we're going back into lockdown. Congratulations, everybody. Nice job, anti-vaxxers. But enough of that. You're listening to Season 3, and this is Episode number 2 of the History of Religions and, of course, their gods. But let me ask you something. Did you feel that somewhere special or somewhere sacred? I really hope so. But enough of that. I am your host, the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and, of course, their origins. And more importantly, how is it that grown-ass adults still believe in this shit and try to work it into our legislation? That is kind of the overall passion here, right? So this show is a compilation of essays, papers, research materials, all from leading scholars and professors all around the world, as well as authors of some of the most popular books on the topic, such as my favorite Carrier and Harari and Bart Ehrman. But the scope of this show is to analyze and to compare history through the scope of archaeology, using simple logic as well as literature, whether biblical or extra-biblical. And these accounts that are found in the Old and the New Testament, and it's interesting to see what people hold as absolute truth from the Bible, or even the Quran for that matter. And once we compare the evidence side by side with actual history versus biblical or Quranic history, but actually, at the end of the day, folks, that's all for you to decide. I'm just laying out everything that we have to take a look at and analyze side by side and make a decision from there. So this episode, it's going to be a little, more, a little bit more lighthearted, but it's called Cross-Examining the Crucifixion. Now, I know we're stepping back a little bit, but this is going to be a little bit more fun. Because in this episode, I'm going to overlap all four narratives as told by Mark. Matthew, Luke, and John, but especially highlight the odd and bizarre differences. Then we'll take a look at the Christmas story and some of its original ancient sources as it relates to the birth of Jesus and how perhaps those particular authors draw on really old shit to kind of help fulfill their particular narrative. So this episode will be more sarcastic, fun, and lighthearted, but definitely interesting. I always want to keep it interesting. And again, if you don't walk away from an episode knowing more, then it's not worth it to me. So yeah, I'm backing up a little bit, but it's going to be fun and super cool. So it will also be most definitely helpful to you when you are engaging in certain debates when it does come down to the birth of Christ, as well as the crucifixion story, because the entire religion of Christianity hinges upon this subject alone. So everybody, thank you for listening, and please share with your friend if you think that they would enjoy the show as well, and help spread that love, God damn it! <laughs> so if you give me an hour, I'll give you the history of the world, and so much more! So if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, Ted, hop in, or tune in, and let's go watch four different crucifixions go down. Who's ready? I'm ready! gospel accounts of the crucifixion narrative, told over the course of 70-some-odd years, somewhere around that 75, all the way through as late as 140 of the Common Era. 
Now we must take a look at the variances and then try to figure out why would each author make such huge, odd, and bizarre changes based upon the original that we found in Mark, who wrote originally, right? So I will show in contrast how the other gospel writers made their story of the crucifixion their own, by each edition bettering the last, making corrections as well as changing the narrative altogether. So in Mark 15, verse 10, it starts with the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, one of his twelve disciples we know. And oddly enough, not only were all disciples fictitious characters, the name Judas alone was made up in is actually an anti-Semitic claim. The name Iscariot is actually tame, taken from the rebel group that we've talked about before, being that of the Sakari. Do you remember them, the Sakari, the Jewish rebels that actually ended up causing the fall of the temple? And they were a group of Jewish assassins as well that used small daggers that were called Sika. So also, what makes this more interesting is there was actually a type of goat that was called, and is still called, Judas. Literally, Judas goat that were used to corral sheep or cattle to certain destinations. In fact, in stockyards, they would be used to lead sheep or a lamb or cattle to slaughter. Interesting enough, right? So right from the get-go, Mark is employing this character to be the one that leads Jesus to slaughter. Just as Jesus or Judas did to Jesus in the crucifixion narrative. The character is completely unknown outside the Bible and is made up to demonstrate in a veiled way how the Jews led Jesus to be slaughtered along with the betrayal and the rejection of their very own God. In some parts of the Middle East, these sheep are still in existence under this particular name called Judas. So Jesus, Jesus or excuse me, Judas was actually a parable about Jews killing Christ. And as seen in Luke's version, in Luke 23, verse 3, Satan got inside of him. So, meaning the Jews, right? So also in Luke's version, in contrast to Mark's, he tells the amount that was offered to Judas, 30 pieces of silver, to find out where Jesus was hiding. So this most definitely builds up the betrayal of the Jews against Jesus, the new temple, and ultimately their God. Now, during the Last Supper episode with Jesus, as well as the Twelve Disciples, all writers pretty much stayed fairly true to each other's versions and didn't make too many alterations or improvements, except for Luke, who adds much more greater detail to Jesus' speech while at the table. And these are things that Luke wanted to say. The authors used these types of opportunities to say the things that they think would be important to their particular audience during their particular time. And then, after being arrested, Mark has Jesus meet with Pilate and the Jewish chief priest, who makes accusations at Jesus. And Jesus has some small dialogue, but says nothing. He just goes cold, clams up. But what Mark does do is he builds a narrative around some Old Testament scripture from the book of Leviticus, actually, built around a character in one of Josephus' books 
the Jewish wars that nearly parallels step-by-step Jesus' entire crucifixion narrative. And of course, we're talking about Jesus ben Ananias, right, who was one of the Jewish rebels. But he uses that particular character all the way through his death to mirror Jesus's. So Mark pulls from scripture, then adds some color from real scenes outside of the Old Testament. So he takes the theme from Leviticus, and then he adds a character in from real history. This is common mythmaking. We talked about this in several episodes back. This is how they did it. All four of these authors learned it, and this is how they employed it. So Mark writes, during his particular time, it was customary to release one prisoner, and the crowd got to pick who gets set free and who was to be crucified. So Jesus was going up against a murderer who was named Barabbas, as we covered in great death earlier, right? We talked about him in chapters about Mark. And so basically, the name Barabbas literally means in Aramaic, the son of the father. And in many scriptures, he's actually referred to Jesus Barabbas. So literally, you have Jesus, son of the father, completing the Leviticus narrative of having the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. Remember? So in Mark's version, Pilate asked the crowd who to set free, and they call for Barabbas to set free. So the crowd shouted to crucify Jesus. So Mark was simply pulling from the narrative found in Leviticus 16 with the two sheep, one to set free into the wilderness, while the other is to be slaughtered for the blood atonement on the holy day of Passover, ironically enough. So the other gospel writers will redact this base story narrative, but they will add in their own flair to better suit their particular narrative, as we'll see shortly. Now, at this point, and only in Matthew's version, who is the second gospel, obviously you guys all know this, who writes sometime around between 80 and 85. I'm pushing for 85, because there's no reason why he would write immediately or exactly around the same time as Mark. But he has Judas actually hang himself in shame for turning in Jesus and accepting the money, now placing some guilt onto the Jews right? Assuming that they should also go hang themselves for what they have done. But in Matthew's version, the chief priest and the Jewish elite rally the crowd to crucify Jesus. So now it's really intensifying it because Mark's version wasn't enough. So now the chief priests of the Jews are actually going out and getting the crowd riled up, getting them going, getting the rally against Jesus. Where in Luke's version, the third gospel, who writes closer to 90, he has Jesus sent, first of all, to go see Herod, who was what? The current king of the Jews in his timeline. So he has to, so before he goes straight to the gallows, if you would, to the crucifixion pole, he's got to go see Herod now. Completely devoid from Mark's story, completely devoid from Matthew's story. So this author of Luke makes a point to say that Herod was actually anxious to meet with Jesus because he wanted to see Jesus perform some of his miracles first, just trying to confirm that Jesus was indeed performing miracles. But once again, Jesus refused to perform for him. And so he just clams up and he goes cold. So he's returned back to Pilate to suffer his plight. 
So each gospel writer, starting with Mark, you can really start to see how they push the idea of the Jews killing the new temple, being at fault for destroying the old temple. And then when the new temple comes, they kill it as well, who is symbolic of the, um, the sacrificial lamb, as in Leviticus 16. So the rejection of Christ and the betrayal of the only Son of God. So now we have the Jews denying their God. And God obviously let them go. So first, just a crowd saying to crucify him and Mark, to the Jewish elite stirring up the crowd, to the king of the Jews, Herod, confirming his death. And then in John, the most anti-Semitic of them all, that son of a bitch, makes the crowd confirm not once, not twice, but three times to crucify Jesus, even though Pilate didn't want to. Martyrdom was a very important popular technique in antiquity. The harsher the punishment, the greater the martyrdom. You see this all through storytelling and all through antiquity. Now, stepping back to Mark, in his version, he actually adds in that the soldiers mocked Jesus and made him carry his very own cross to Golgotha, where he would be hung on a cross between two robbers to die. So he goes on and uses some verses that were actually found in the Wisdom of Solomon, which was a book that was still available in the Old Testament scriptures during Mark's time, but later pulled in the 16th century as it... Um, but this basically outlines the entire scene. So John, and that's it actually in Wisdom of Solomon 2.2, if you want to look it up on your own. But John, the last gospel, and the most liberal writer of them all, adds that the soldiers make Jesus actually wear a purple robe. And this is also the guy who writes in the 90s. He's the one that throws in the thorn of um, the crown of thorns, right? And so he basically has everybody yell, all hail the king of the Jews. The crowd and the chief priests shouted out in return, crucify him. And then the writer for John adds in when Pilate asked the crowd for the third and the final time, who should they crucify? Well, the Jews responded with, we have a law and he must die. Now, keeping in mind, John's only source of this whole thing going down was Lazarus, who was an invention from Luke in a parable that he wrote about. And we talked about it in the past. I don't need to regurgitate that. But John made all this up to place the blame entirely on the Jews. And you can see where John redacts from Mark and Matthew from Luke, but adds in that crown of thorn as well as the robe that we all hear about. And then you hear preachers from the pulpit. And everyone has to refer to John's version because it has the most color. Why not just refer to Mark's? He was the first one. Now, only Luke builds in the visit to go see Herod. Remember the actual king of the Jews? Where Mark, Matthew, and John either didn't think it was important enough to talk about or didn't actually happen. So you can see creating narratives as the story is developed over time. Just as any other story that we talk about that is found in the Bible that has been edited over hundreds of years. So I think that it's important that Luke 
to add in the betrayal of the king of the Jews, who just happened to be in Jerusalem at the same time as the crucifixion, along with the betrayal of Judas. I think it's interesting to see how he employs these particular narratives. It fits the narrative perfectly, just as we see in Matthew's story, starting with Herod murdering, murdering every single child under two years old in an attempt to kill Jesus, to the Jewish elite rallying the crowd to condemn Jesus at the end. So either way, both authors took Mark's story and made it completely about the Jews rejecting Christ or rejecting their God and being responsible for the destruction of the first temple and in, in, in echoing that in the destruction of Jesus. God, hence the second, or I'm sorry, the replacement temple, the third temple. So at the site of the crucifixion, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph and Solomon. So Luke adds in that Jesus had conversations with people while on the cross. Um, other than that, all writers kind of stay pretty close to who witnessed the crucifixion, with except to John adding in the invention of Lazarus at the crucifixion, as a male eyewitness to give his narrative a little bit more credibility. Remember we talked about that? Because the other three only had women at the site. So John has to throw a man into the scene to see this go down as well. So a little bit is known about this because women's testimonies were widely accepted, even in court, according to Josephus that we've learned, right? So, the empty tomb, of course, the resurrection and the Last Supper were all witnessed by John's Lazarus as well, adding a man to the scene as a witness. So, Matthew tells us that no disciples were even in Jerusalem at the time. So, I guess, I guess by um, Luke and John's time, they all managed to come back. Now, after our Jesus died, all four of them, all, writers, all the writers wrote that the sky went black and that the veil of the temple split in two. Now, why would you write this? Because it was incredibly symbolic of the Jewish temple cult breaking the covenant with God that ultimately led to the destruction of the second temple in 70 CE under the hand of Vespasian and his son Titus. Now, however, the writer for Matthew adds in that you know, it, it, the, the veil, you know, the temple wall breaking in half wasn't enough. I get the symbolism of that because that's cool. But now Matthew gets a little crazy here. He, he, he throws in a little walking dead because all the graves of the past saints opened up and the bodies of the dead walked to the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the problem with this story is that Matthew is the only one who says this. And if this did happen... I would think that it would have been mentioned in every first century Jewish as well as pagan literature and history from multiple sources that were there. Not one biblical writer trying to up Mark's version or make improvements. Rather, this just one literary artifice. So obviously, Matthew finds color. I, I, I can imagine. He read Mark's version. And then he's like, no, 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 no. Temp you know, the sky goes black and the temple curtain breaks in half because that symbolizes the separation between God and the Jewish temple. So, yeah, all the dead saints get up and they walk to the city. 
That's, that, that's got to do it. So now in Luke's version, he says that only Jesus' acquaintances were there to witness the crucifixion. Then in John's version, he wanted to add in a Roman soldier piercing Jesus in his side. Now you remember this? Because it's the one go-to thing that we always talk about. Every single pastor that I've ever known in my life always has to refer to John's version, even though Mark, Matthew, and Luke don't employ this narrative at all. But it makes sense why he does it. And we talked about it when we talked about just John's um, gospel alone. But he wanted to add in this Roman soldier going up. And if you can imagine it, he's got like this 10-foot long spear, as we talked about in the Wars of the Jews. And he takes it and he stabs it into Jesus' side. And then what do we hear? Blood. And then when the blood finished coming out, water started to come out of the incision. Which we, just, which we discussed before in the chapter about John and the significance of blood and water, which fulfills his entire motif of turning water into wine or blood into water. It's the water and the wine theme. And there's a whole story and narrative that call combine about this. And then the blood and the water finalizes that narrative. And if you find that interesting, please go back to the episode where we talk about John the Gnostic, not the Synoptic. You'll absolutely love it because it is effing cool. But this edition is early 2nd century. The writer for John also wanted to point out that the scripture has been fulfilled referring to Daniel 9, Isaiah 52, Zechariah 3 and 6, as well as what we just talked about in Wisdom Solomon. And that's chapter 2. Actually, I said chapter 2, verse 2. It's chapter 2, verse 18, which was all written some 300 years earlier, right? During the pre-Maccabean revolt, but during the Hellenistic period. It's so cool. But another thing that's cool about what we talked about with John and his having the Roman soldier piercing Jesus on the side and the blood turning into water is I've heard multiple, multiple Christian apologetic debaters use that as proof that, well, during the first century, they didn't know that once blood is done, the body would start um, aspirating water. Well, for one, it was just a creative narrative, but two, bullshit. They've known that for probably 500 years before that narrative went down. You're going to tell me that nobody's ever been crucified before Jesus and has been pierced to the point where their lungs were aspirating water and air? Give me a break, guys. That's not a good argument. Now, once our hero Jesus is buried in the tomb of Joseph, he's wrapped in white, beautiful linen, and a large stone is slid into place to seal the opening of the tomb. Right? We've all, we've all heard this part. So now Mark says both Marys were there to observe. Now, that again provides first century Jewish credibility. So Matthew has to add in, who writes, remember, about five to ten years later, he adds in a Roman guard to watch the tomb overnight, not just there. So now we've got the two Marys and a Roman soldier who, who witnessed that the tomb was closed and our hero was locked inside. Now Luke, who writes after Matthew, says, The two women from Galilee were there. Not one of their writers could agree on who was present there other than adding in characters to the scene. Other Gospels, not canonized, of course, outside of our four, 
actually have a huge cross emerging from the tomb to have a total conversation with a big booming voice from the sky and evidently, evidently had this conversation with God confirming that Jesus was dead and inside the cross. This cross came out of the tomb to have that conversation. But the next day after the Sabbath had passed, on the day, the first day of the week, Mark says both Marys and Solomon arrive at the tomb only to find that the door was slid open. Now, when both Marys and Solomon arrive at the tomb, the large stone that sealed the door was open, and inside there was a young man in a long white robe waiting inside. And he, and, and he comforted them and told them, Go tell the disciples the good news that Jesus has, written as, has risen as prophesied in Old Testament scriptures. And that, go meet him. He'll be there waiting for you in Galilee. Now in Matthew's version, he doesn't have Solomon go with the two Marys to the tomb. But he does add in a massive earthquake instead that shook the earth and an angel descended from the heavens rode open the heavy door, and then decided to sit on it. Now remember, Matthew had a Roman guard in his story, so they were, that Roman guard saw the angel descending and sat on the, um, on the stone and opened it. But that guard was standing there shaking in his tin boots. The angel told the women to go tell the news to the disciples as well, just like Mark did. So again, We've got Mark telling us just that we have two women. And then we have Matthew telling us that, well, I'm sorry, three women. Then Matthew telling us now two women and a guard and an angel floating down, opening up the tomb, scaring the holy shit out of the Roman guard. And go tell the disciples. Now, our buddy Luke, in his version, who writes in the 90s, he says that certain women arrived at the tomb. And the door was open, that no body was found inside. But what he does say is, there were two men in shiny garments standing by them. By the women, of course. Unknown women. So now we have not one soldier, but two just in case. Two Roman soldiers, not just the women who loved Jesus. Two Roman soldiers that hated Jesus. And actually, you know, saw him die. So, however, Luke goes on to say that the women told the eleven and the rest what had happened, while Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary's mother of James, told the apostles. Now, of course, Peter had to run back to the tomb to see it for himself. Doubting Peter, I guess, not doubting Thomas. But same as before, although female testimony was widely accepted, having a male to testify makes the case so much more sound and concrete. You know, so it must be true. So it's interesting to see that we go from one guard to two guards to Peter having to run back and look for himself. It must have happened. And again, I've had this conversation in many debate with Christian apologists that, well, you have Roman soldiers that saw the whole thing go down. How could it not have happened? All right. So then John, who again, you know, we're writing sometime around 95 to sometime even close to 130 that we can tell by some of the hints in his writing. Only Mary alone goes to the grave and finds the empty tomb. 
Inside she finds two angels sitting on the bed where Jesus was once laid. So not one angel, not one descending from heaven to sit on the door or one in a long robe waiting inside, but two. They told her to tell the others the good news as well. So all the writers pretty much conclude with Jesus meeting the disciples and telling them to go out and preach the gospel to every creature who believes and is baptized to join the cult, that they will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned to hell for eternity. Then he ascends up to heavens on a cloud, and as you saw with Romulus, as well as Socrates, they all descended up on a cloud. So you can see that each writer made a few additions and contributions over the years to add color, as well as to make it more dramatic, as we saw that they were all trying to write the next epic novel, or the next great Homeric or Virgil story, with very similar Greek writing styles, I have to add. Many Christian apologists, such as Strobel and even C.W. Lewis, will make the excuse that the stories differ just a little bit because it's second-hand information, told from one source to another, and small, insignificant pieces of the story may differ one from the other. I'm sorry, but these are pretty significant differences, if you ask me. Especially, are you accepting that John, who writes as late as 1.30, is taking first-hand eyewitness testimony to something that happened in the 30s? Yeah, I don't buy it. It's impossible. People were dead two generations over. So, I think in a nutshell, it's important to understand that these writers developing these narratives, we get the source material, right? We get the parallels that they're trying to make so that their audience would understand and make the connection. They understood what had gone down in their time, or recently after. Think about it. During Mark's time, what had happened? They witnessed the fall of the temple. Some of them that were on the educated side read it in the Jewish Wars by Josephus. If not firsthand eyewitnessing, seeing the war go down to the destruction of the temple, to actually seeing these Jewish rebels actually antagonizing the Roman soldiers. And, you know, and this wasn't just a group, a small little group of assassins. This was groups of 30, 40, 100, 200,000, as we talked about, that was discussed in the Jewish wars. All different insurgencies happening at different times and different places throughout the battles through 66, all the way up to Mazda in 73 to the conclusion of the death of the Jews, the Jewish rebels, that is. So I think it's important to understand that these writers really wanted to make sure that everyone in their audience blamed the non-converted Jews for the killing of their Jesus Christ, the Son of God, later to be called Christ Killer or Killers of Christ. These Gospels will affect the way the Christians view the Jews in centuries to come, leading to their demise, if you would, as we still see in anti-Semitic literature today. It's disgusting how this literature is still taken literally. And you and I just broke this down in 30 minutes, not to mention each of these episodes. And I really hope to God that you can all take this information and have these conversations and start 
having intelligent conversations with believers who are holding their beliefs so sacred against people that we love and care about. But what do we know about those 12 disciples we talked about? Now, as I mentioned, I'm pretty critical about the invention of the characters. See, you see the number 12 throughout a lot of different things throughout scripture, and the number 12 is actually pretty important. And you even see it later on discussed that there are 12 gates to heaven, if you would. But there are also such literary inventions following the 12 ages of the Zodiac to the 12 tribes of Israel. And we talked about the invention of Judas, right? So let's just talk about a few of these things. I'm going to lay them out in kind of easy to understand bullet point. Because these men really should be famous as they were all hand-picked people from Jesus himself. Yet we absolutely know nothing about them whatsoever. They aren't even mentioned in any literature outside the canonized Gospels. Anything outside of Christian Apocrypha. We can't even be sure of their names with over 20 mentioned in the Gospels, from Bartholomew as Nathaniel to Matthew as Levi or Jude, so on and so forth. And it's all very strange that 12 men, all infused with the Holy Spirit, the ability to cast out demons, perform miracles, heal the sick, take witness to the deeds of Jesus, left no sermons, no teachings or any letters of their own. They're simply gone. Perhaps they did exist, and they weren't important enough to save. Right? Yeah, that doesn't sound like something that I would throw away. In fact, the Gospels are the only source for seven of the twelve men that we are know, that we're aware of, and they are clearly inventing everything that they say about them. Now, Peter, he was not beheaded by Nero. This was added in by a second-century pope. His name was Anicetus, and when he became locked in conflict with Polycarp of Smyrna over the dating of Easter, Polycarp said that he had spoken to John the Apostle. But Nero trumped him by saying, well, hey, I spoke to Peter. Peter wins over John every single time. So you get that. And then second-century texts that are called the Clementine Letters made Peter the first bishop of Rome, and third-century invention gave him a 25-year pontificate. However, that's pretty hard to do when you're already dead, I would imagine. But a third-century church father who we know as Origen, he had Peter crucified upside down to, to martyr his passion for Jesus. And then James, the brother of John, is killed by none of the other than Herod, by his own sword, to vex the church, as seen in Acts 12 verses 1 and 2, then later legend has a guard who is watching over James decides to be headed next to James, also in martyrdom for James for Jesus. And then you have John, the son of Zebedee, who has to be kept alive just long enough so that he can take care of Mary, lead the church, write the book of Revelation, as well as his own gospel. He even survives being boiled in oil, which... I can't wait to talk about later on. And then Paul is beheaded by Nero. He is, 
<laughs> no, not really, but legend has it he shared the same fate as Peter, being crucified upside down, even on the same day, seen in Acts of Paul, in the Apocalypse of Paul, and the Martyrdom of Paul. Each one gets better and better and better. And no, Nero didn't kill any Christians. He didn't have any condemnation with Christians. Who was Nero fighting up to the point that it changed over to Vespasian? The rebellious Sakari. He was only worried about dealing with the Jews, who he ended up handing over to Vespasian before he killed himself. And then Vespasian handing over to Titus. This is known all the way up through the time of Mark as the battle with the Jews. And then not to mention that, Josephus says shit about Paul. Anything of that matter. So now let's get down and let's talk about Christmas. Because we need to put Christ into Christmas again. So let's talk about that. So this particular piece of the episode is called A Christmas Story. And yeah, I wish it was one about the little kid in the glasses, you know. You're going to sh shoot your brother's eye out. But no, this is actually going to be about little baby Jesus, okay? So in this episode, we're going to talk about the virgin birth. Incidentally, only told in Matthew as well as in Luke, but completely left out in Mark and John, which is odd, so it's just the two in the middle. So Mark knew nothing about it, or didn't think it was important enough to share, because Mark starts off his particular Jesus story right from the beginning of his ministry, and then ends abruptly with the crucifixion. And then John, obviously, starts from ministry, and then goes on with this elaborate story about, you know, the crucifixion and then days after. To where Matthew and Luke are right in the middle, have the story of birth and Jesus and his childhood. Even in the teens and all that kind of stuff. So let's drill down into this a little bit. Because who exactly was Joseph? And why does Christianity celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th at all? So I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the history and how this holiday even came to be. And so I want to first recognize that in Christianity, this holiday is used to celebrate the birth of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we go into the story of the virgin birth, I want to see what we know about Joseph and Mary from all religious literature from the time, including the Gospels. I also want to dig down into the Old Testament scripture to see what was said about Jesus versus what the New Testament tells us that leads us from the birth to the death of Jesus Christ, the Savior Messiah. Now, of the four canonical Gospels, only two actually describe the virgin birth of Jesus through Mary with soon-to-be husband Joseph in Bethlehem. Now, these are told through the authors of Matthew, who writes in 85 of the Common Era, and then Luke, who writes closer to the year 90, 70 years after the supposed death of the, of the narrative, right? So Mark and John never mention early years about Jesus at all. As I said, it's completely devoid of this particular subject. They either didn't think it mattered, it wasn't important enough, or it didn't happen. Which goes back to Paul's celestial Jesus right? So they both start with him at the age of 30, 
getting baptized, and beginning his ministry. But as we have learned, each gospel writer tried to better than last, make the improvements that they felt necessary. Although Mark, being the first, should be the most reliable source, we would imagine. So Matthew and Luke just felt the need to give Jesus' parents and a birth scene proper probably for legitimization of the seed of David, as seen in Psalms 132, as well as the, the misinterpretation from Isaiah 7 about a young woman, right, who would be that of Christian interpreters would be of Mary. But John, as we know it, wrote more freely and didn't care too much about what other guys wrote and pretty much creating his own narrative. Shoots from the hip. Pow! But it was important to Matthew to fulfill this prophecy that's found in Scripture. And Luke, of course, redacted from those particular words are in those particular narratives and put them into his own words. Now let's look at Matthew's account of his nativity scene. Because he has a bright star appear in the sky, brightest as ever, like Halley's Comet, something like that, which probably led to the actual um, inspiration of the star. But the star would guide foreign leaders, the Magi, to come witness Jesus, bearing gifts and to worship him where they find him in a home. Not in a manger, as we will see Luke do for some obvious political reasoning. But many scholars believe that Matthew's nativity story with the star and the Magi to establish the messianic status of Jesus regard the star of Bethlehem as simple, pious fiction. Aspects of Matthew's account, which have raised questions of the historical event, include that of Matthew is the only one of the four Gospels which even mention either the star or the Magi. You know, the three wise men. So scholars suggest that the Bethlehem nativity narrative just reflects a desire by this particular author to present his birth as fulfillment of the prophecy, which needed him to be born of the seed of David, as we saw in Psalms 132, and to be born in Bethlehem. And so we'll take a look at some of those prophecies. But according to several Old Testament prophecies, the Jewish Messiah is to be a direct traceable, and patrilineal descendant of the King David. By the way, most scholars are pretty damn sure King David was invention of early Jewish mythology, um, but doesn't matter. But for instance, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, God tells this to King David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. That would be sperm. And I will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. He is the only one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This sect of Jews making propaganda to other Jews that they will be the heirs of the throne of Israel forever. Right? Propaganda. We talked about that in the first episodes. I will be his father, the Jewish king, and he will be my son just like Horus was to Osiris. So when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. This is alluding to the Jews that this king will not be of divine nature, rather a human king, as was the previous, as well as be the future kings, not alluding to a demigod or a um, actual god figure, 
That's not what these guys were thinking, even though they were messianic. They were thinking a king of this particular sectarian group of Jews would continue the throne. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, which is the new international version. This is clearly the author writing into the post-exilic period, early 5th to 3rd century BCE, confirming propaganda to the Jewish sect of people that they will have a king of Israel and a descendant of the King David. This is not necessarily about prophecy of Jesus, rather that the Jews will continue to be the heirs of Israel, is all that this particular verse is saying. Now, in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the writer attempts to establish this patrilineal link. This is the one of two chapters in the Bible that lists all the begets. Right? The writer goes down the list, starting with Abraham begets Isaac in verse 2 and ending with Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary in verse 16. But the full verse reads, And Jacob began Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And this is found in the King James Version. So if taken literally, we know that Jesus cannot be the Messiah because Joseph was not a blood descendant of King David, right? No matter how hard you try to explain it away. Neither Joseph nor Mary were descendants of David. And even if Mary was, women can't pass down lineage in Jewish tradition. It's Torah law. Still, a few Jews ignored this stipulation and were converted to Christianity. But the bulk of early Christian converts were, in fact, Romans. This point is elaborated in the chapter, Jews Who Rejected Jesus. I'm sorry, episode. If you're on the uh, essay, it's chapter. And by the way, if you're following along, this is page 555. So here are some of the others that we can look at where Matthew found some good materials to work in for his particular narrative. Let's take a look at each one. Let's start off going all the way back into the Old Testament. We're going to go back to Genesis, chapter 22, verse 18. We are told that through Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So Christians believe Jesus is the fulfillment of this particular promise. Or perhaps he is from the line of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, as seen in Numbers 24, 17. I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise of Israel. That's a pretty darn good one if I was Matthew writing, right? And these guys, especially, especially Matthew, he was absolutely from the Torah observant sect of Christianity. He knows his scripture. And then from Isaiah 11 verse 1, or maybe he is from the lines of Jesse, the father of King David. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Pretty good, right? And then from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. He must be from the line of King David. Because 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the Torah from Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Euphratah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you, for me, one will be ruler over all of Israel, whose origins are of old, from ancient times. Right? Are you seeing where he's getting this? Then Isaiah 7.14. He must have been born from a virgin, right? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel actually means God with us. But there's a problem here. The actual Hebrew word used was not virgin. It was young girl. Also in Jewish tradition, this Messiah would be raised by a mother and a father in the conventional way. Having sex and having birth vaginally. So this verse was a misinterpretation by this author. This Christian author. And one of the reasons why Jews reject this Jesus, right? So also this young girl or virgin is a ref- reference to Israel as a nation that will be inherited by the Jewish people. It was not about an actual child being born. It was about the Jews inheriting Israel as their own. Now, Luke, who writes after Matthew, found this particular one extremely useful, that Jesus would be worshipped by shepherds from the desert, and that the foreign kings would present gifts to him, is actually suggested in Psalms 72, verse 9 and 10. May the desert tribes bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him, and all nations serve him. Now, however, we know that this author wrote predominantly after Cyrus the Great, and we're talking about Psalms, of course, writing the post-exilic time, so probably sometime after 516, and probably closer into the 400s. And, you know, the Cyrus the Great freed the Jews from captivity. We remember this, right, from the first from the first um, season. So the Babylonians and the Assyrians would bow down to him after his conquest. Or again, just another reference to Israel and the king of Israel that they hoped would be the Jewish king from the seat of David. However, the Jews were forever thankful to Cyrus and referred to him quite often all throughout the Old Testament in this particular manner. So if you want more on that, you need to go back and you need to look at the Demon Kings. You need to look at the episodes that we talked about um, with Cyrus the Great. And we need to look at those particular episodes that talk about the Jews' relationship with Cyrus after the fact. And then especially getting to the Hellenistic period. So if you want more in understanding what the Old Testament writers were writing about, we're talking about the freedom of the Jews as well as the Canaanites. We're talking about the people of Palestine trickling back in, in a particular sectarian group of Jews that were hopeful for their invention of King David to actually take throne of the temple. 
which as we historically know, they had a very small window where they actually did have some control of the temple, but not really, not really at all. But Matthew also creates a ridiculous narrative that no one else has in their stories. King Herod supposedly slaughtered a number of children in an attempt to kill Jesus, right? Before he could become the Messiah. And, the, you know, coming from the seed of David, right? Because if he's coming from the lineage of David, obviously he has to replace Herod. Herod has to bow down and worship Jesus. So, understanding this, Matthew has Herod kill every single baby two years old and under. This is suggested also in Jeremiah 31, 15, that reads, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel, wife of Jacob, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So one thing that we have to know is these writers using human names for places. We know that Rachel is a reference to Israel. Now, please reread that, understand that we are talking about Israel. It changes the story altogether, right? So Matthew's description of the miracles and the portents attending the birth of Jesus can actually be compared to the stories concerning the birth of Augustus as well, who is who is uh, 63 before the common era, right? So linking a birth to the first appearance of a star was actually consistent with the popular belief that each person's life was linked to a particular star. So magi and astronomical events were linked in the public mind to visit to Rome of a delegation of magi at the time of a spectacular appearance of Halley's Comet in 66 AD which Matthew most definitely saw and used into his particular story. This delegation was led by King Teredides of Armenia, who came seeking confirmation of his title from Emperor Nero. Ancient historian Dio Cassius wrote that the king did not return by the route he had followed in coming, which is a line that's similar in the text of Matthew's account. Now, although Matthew and Luke are the only gospel writers to share in the nativity story, the narratives bear almost no resemblance whatsoever to each other at all. What they do share about Jesus is having parents, his birth in Bethlehem, and his family relocating to Nazareth. But all of those were inspired by scripture. Everything else differs completely. So, for example, in Matthew... Jesus and his family were forced to escape to Egypt to avoid what? The massacre of the innocents, where Herod the Great, the king of Judah, orders the execution of all male children two years and under, who's living in the vicinity of Bethlehem, in an attempt to kill Jesus because the Magi informed him of it. So a majority of Herod's biographers, as well as New Testament scholars, actually claim this event to be myth as well as folklore that Matthew used to build a better story and to demonstrate fulfillment of prophecy and the king of the Jews trying to kill the Messiah. Bum, bum, bum. Right? Whack! So in fact, this event is historically dubious as it would have been mentioned in all four Gospels, not just Matthew's. The Pauline letters and other independent sources outside the Bible. Therefore, this is not history at all, folks. After Herod's death, the Holy Family returns to Nazareth. 
and Matthew deploys a few tactics to demonstrate how the Jews rejected Jesus, starting with Herod and ending with the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish elite, right? So he completes this narrative from the birth of Jesus to his death and at the fault of kings of the Jews. Now, in Luke's nativity story, again, who writes after Matthew, so he throws in a census, right? You guys you all probably all heard of the story, but he leaves out the massacre of the innocents altogether. It's unimportant to him. It doesn't fit the story that he wants to tell, which is kind of him, actually, right? But which at the time, it's incredibly improbable of having a census. But he does this to try to establish the birth in Bethlehem. If there's a census... And, you know, sure enough, there's, there's the family. But unfortunately, in Matthew, who wrote before Luke, places his birth during the reign of Herod the Great, who dies nine years earlier. So unfortunately, we have no evidence of a census until around the year six or seven of the Common Era. And then why again would you have people return to their ancestral homes to be counted when they might have all left generations before? Highly unlikely. But in his story, he has Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem because of the census. And then Jesus is born and visited by the shepherds, not the Magi or the wise men, is then presented at the temple in Jerusalem. So Mary and Joseph go to the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and by the way, when Luke is writing this, the temple has been destroyed for, what, 10 years now? But they're having his Jesus presented to the temple in Jerusalem as a baby. And then he returns to Nazareth and visits Jerusalem each year for Passover, which was common at the time, I guess. So by the time Jesus hits the age 12, Mary and Joseph discover Jesus in the temple by himself, discussing important conversations such as theology with those priests at the temple, having very highbrow conversations. So also in Luke's version, there's no star of Bethlehem, but instead we get some celestial angels. Remember this, as seen in the um, as seen in, in the uh, the manger scene, and these celestial angels with gold faces floating in the sky that leads the shepherds to the manger. Not a house as seen in Matthew's depiction. So we have a house birth with kings coming to found Jesus by the light of a magical floating star, and in Matthew to a meek little manger with straw everywhere with shepherds by Luke. So Luke was probably trying to appeal to, to appeal to Jesus the lower classes of society with propaganda verses that would, you know, looking to the lower and the poorer people, even perhaps the slaves versus those that were in Mark's time that were appealing to a highbrow level of, you know, aristocrats, maybe. So, in summary, as well as in comparison, both authors of Matthew and Luke seem to be structured around a common problem in their stories. The prophecies say that the descendant of King David will be born in Bethlehem and will be the apocalyptic messiah. But somehow the story has to work out with Jesus being in Nazareth as well. So in Luke's story, it appears that he goes through a great length of detail, of effort, to get his Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. While Matthew goes through less fussy, you know, he's less fussy about historical details and just puts them there. <laughs> but finally, the Holy Family gets to Nazareth 
where Matthew invents the massacre of the innocents and Luke just has them go home. After the supposed census happens, right? But again, why would there be a census? But we know why he worked it in. But I'm surprised that Luke didn't borrow this detail. It's just so much drama. But additionally, I'd like to point out that in the first gospel, the book of Mark, who writes in 76, perhaps 79, Jesus's family called his ministry crazy. They told him that he was crazy. That was Mark's idea. It gives him a family, but he just doesn't talk about it. So I would think that Mary and Joseph would remember if an angel visited them, telling them that they were going to be raising the Son of God. However, Joseph makes no appearance in Mark's gospel whatsoever. Jesus is referred to only, only as the son of Mary in Mark 6, 3. Now we can talk about where did Mark get the idea for Mary, the mother of the son of God, right? Who would be the sacrificial lamb? in his um, crucifixion narrative. So if you guys listen to my Wars of the Jews um, episodes um, sometime early in season two, we know that Josephus in the Wars of the Jews, pages 199 through page 200, Josephus wrote about the siege on Jerusalem by Vespasian, son Titus, the emperor of Rome. And he tells us about a woman named Mary who actually, during the siege of Rome, where basically what happened is Titus basically built walls all around the city, and he cut them off from food, and he cut them off from water. And then people were literally starving to death and dying of dehydration. And Josephus tells us that there was just cannibalism left and right. People were eating bodies that had just died. Evidently, you can't let a body die for three days and then go eat it. I guess that's not so good. But Josephus tells us about this woman who ate of her son. Her her name was Mary and ate of her son. But what she says is the most important of all in her depiction um, in Josephus' account. So I'm basically going to read what this particular section says in Wars of the Jews, page 199 to 200. So understand this was written in Greek translated to English, so it's going to sound a little funny, but you're, you're going to get it. There's some real dum-dum-dum moments in here. There was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan, and her name was Mary. Her father's name was Lazarus, or Eleazar, of the village of Bethesab, which signifies the house of Hysop. She was imminent for her family and her wealth, and had fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude, and with them besieged therein at the time, meaning that she was basically there in Jerusalem during the time of the besiegement from Titus. The other effects of this woman had already been seized upon. The Romans had taken all of her shit, basically. Such, I mean, as she had brought out from Perea, from when she came home, and removed to the city. What she had treasured up besides, as also what food she had contrived to save, had been also carried off by the rapacious guards. So basically the Romans came into her house and took all of her food, is what this says, who came every day running into her house for that purpose. 
This put the poor woman, Mary, into a very great passion. Basically, it upset her and made her, you know, crazy. And by the frequent, frequent reproaches and imprecations, she cast at the rapacious villains. She had provoked them to anger against her, but none of them, either out of the indignation she had raised against herself or out of commiseration or her case, would take away her life. And if she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself. And it was now become impossible for her in any way to find any more food, while the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow. When also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself, nor did she consult with anything but with her passion and the necessity that she was in. She then attempted the most unnatural thing and snatched up her son, her newborn son, who was a child suckling at her breast. Now, this is important. Listen to this. She said to the child, O thou miserable infant, for whom I shall preserve thee in this war, this famine, and this sedition. Now, keep in mind, the sedition is what she is referring to, the rebellious Jews who have caused the temple and Jerusalem to undergo this siege, right? Be very clear that that's what she's referring to. As the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we will be slaves. This famine will also destroy us, even before that slavery comes upon us. So basically she's saying we're going to starve to death before we even become slaves. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than the Romans? Very clear what she says right there. Are these seditious rogues more terrible than the other? Referring to the Romans. Now, this is what she says. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious varlets. That's so important. We're talking about the rebellious Jews. Be thou a fury to these seditious varlets, and a myth to the world which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. <laughs> That's a lot to take in right there. Now think about Mark, who takes a shit ton for his gospel narrative. He pulls so much from the works of Josephus and uses this for his Mary. So now it goes on. As soon as she said this, this is Josephus talking, she slew her son and then roasted him on a fire and ate one half of him and kept the other half in private. Upon this, the seditious came in presently, so they, the, the Romans came in, and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show him what food she had gotten prepared. She replied she had saved the very fine portion of it for them and withdraw and covered what was left of her son. She had half, remember, and here's the other half of the son. So hereupon were seized with horror and amazement of mind. They stood astonished at the sight, and, they said, and, and, and she said to them, This is my own son. 
that what hath been done was of my own doing. Come eat of this food, for I have eaten of it myself. Do not you pretend to be either more tender than a woman, or more compassionate than a mother? But if you do so scrupulous, and abominate my sacrifice, as I have eaten the one half, let the rest reserved for me also. After which those men went out of the house trembling, being never so much affrightened of anything they have ever seen before. With some difficulty, they left the rest of that meat of the child with the mother Mary. And again, this is seen in Wars of the Jews, version 4, section 3, pages 199, 201, all the way through 212. So that was a lot to take in. But what do we have here now? We know that Mark is employing a shit ton of narrative from the works of Josephus' Wars of the Jews. All right, so we get it. He pulls a lot from scripture. He pulls a lot from Leviticus. And we talked about all the other things that he pulled from to create his narrative, including dialogue for his Jesus, right? But now we have this peculiar thing where he's aware of Josephus telling us about this mother Mary who ate her son in terms of sacrifice and offered it up to those varlets who refused to eat of it, the other half. So, and also referring to the varlets, the varlet rogues are the seditious as the Jewish rebels, not referring to the, the, the Roman soldiers that were taking down the temple, taking down the city you know, who's inflicting this. It's the blame on the Jews that we're getting from this. And I'll have you know that um, Josephus also, he was not a fan of this Jewish rebellion as, as well. He actually referred to them as the wicked, you know, as well as the seditious. So now we have this Mother Mary who has, you know, basically killed her son in, sacrifice, in sacrificial form to eat of its flesh to drink of its blood, and offered it to those who refused it. This is very much on par with the sacrificial lamb narrative. So I just thought that I would share that in there, and you can kind of take it with you what you want, and think about what Mark was trying to design in this particular narrative. So outside of that, it is interesting that our first canonical gospel, which is our first gospel, whether canonical or non-canonical, Mark does not have the story of the virgin birth and, in fact, shows no clue about it whatsoever. We just have this mother, Mary, which is actually a theme. It's a narrative. It's not a story. Because here's the thing. For those readers during Mark's time that read Josephus' story about the cannibalism, about this woman named Mary who ate her baby, they are more than likely making the connection, which was how mythological writing worked. You read about another story, but apply it to a new narrative, and it's a whole different story altogether, which suits Mark's narrative of his crucifixion. It makes sense to the reader, but it's literal to those who are ignorant. But what we do have there are passages in Mark that appear to work against the idea that Jesus' mother knew anything about his having had an extraordinary birth. So there is a complicated title, or, or passage, excuse me, in Mark 3, verse 20 through 21, about Jesus' family coming to take him out of the public eye because he thought that he was crazy. 
It is a difficult passage to translate from Greek, and a number of translations go out of their way to make it something that's something that it probably does not say. The context is that Jesus has been doing extraordinary miracles, attracting enormous crowds, and raising controversy among the Jewish leaders. Jesus then chooses his disciples and they goeth on him into the house. But there is no mention of a Joseph in Mark's story, as well as a John for that matter, and he is unknown to them. Evidently, the biological father didn't stick around, and his name was not even known. He is supposedly the connection to the seed of David. That's all we get, which is all that they needed, which wasn't true at all. It has been suggested by secular theologians such as myself that Joseph is added in later Gospels to make the family storyline more respectable, and Jesus not literally a bastard child. If Mary did raise a, a child as a single parent, as it seems to be in Mark's narrative, it lends to the Pantera theory, the Pantera theory, which leads us to the story of Jesus Benstrata. Jesus was also known as Benstrata, meaning the son of the unfaithful, a woman named Mary who committed adultery with her lover, Pandera, which most likely means Panthera or a panther, which is probably a nickname for a Roman soldier, which gave birth to Benstrata, and this is also known as Ben Pandera, which was probably punned for Ben Pantheros, son of the Virgin. That's Ben Pathenos, son of the Virgin. So the idea of a Roman soldier named Panther being the real father of Jesus, as concerned by Celsus and Origen, gives us Benstrata as our Jesus. And this is furthermore supported in the Jewish Talmud, pointing out that Benstrata is, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth, who was also executed on the day before Passover and condemned for sorcery, as well as leading the Israelites astray. And he was stoned to death by the Jews and then hung. I'm guessing he was stoned and then hung to death, but and not crucified by the Romans, and also all taking place in the year 90 um, uh, BC, a hundred years before the um, time that the Gospels place it. Now, I think that it's important to understand where the name Joseph was concocted, as well as Jesus being the descendant of the King David in a medieval apocalyptic story named The Apocalypse of Zerubbabel, written sometime post-Babylonian captivity, so sometime in the um, late 4th or early 5th century BCE, with biblical and apocalyptic themes, similar to what we would later see in, of course, Daniel and Isaiah and Zechariah. But Zerubbabel, in this particular story, was the governor of the Achaemenid Empire and the grandson of Jeconiah. So he supposedly led the first group of Jews who returned from captivity in the first year of Cyrus the Great. And so Zerubbabel laid the foundation for the second temple, basically, to be built in Jerusalem after the collapse of Solomon's temple by Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so in this particular narrative, there are two messiahs. Get this, there is a messiah, Ben David, which basically means messiah, um, uh, son of. So we got a messiah, son of David and a Messiah, Ben-Joseph. 
So, which simply means son of. So the Messiah, Ben Joseph, would first come and be killed by an evil tyrant named Armelius. Now, Armelius, obviously referring to the Romulus in Rome, but the Messiah, Ben David, would soon appear and resurrect him. And the end of the world would follow shortly after. So it's pretty interesting, right? So quite seemingly so, if one were to merge these two messiahs together, being Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph, one who dies and rises and one who returns victoriously, we have Christianity told in a Jewish story 600 years earlier. We have a Messiah fathered by a Joseph who is killed by an evil power and then resurrected and anointed, the son of David. It makes perfect sense that early Christians united these two figures to build their narrative in the first century of the Common Era. But this is also where the Old Testament scripture developed the idea of a Messiah being born of the seed of David from this apocalyptic text. And it was another story that they enjoyed. And then in deeper exploration of a dying, rising Messiah, or in this case, Messiahs, are also found not only in the Apocalypse of Zerubbabel, as well as the Babylonian Talmud, but in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, written well before the rise of Christianity, as we talked about before. Daniel was written sometime around 170, 160, 150 BCE, and it explicitly says that a Messiah will die shortly before the end of the world, and the wisdom of Solomon presents a son of God who is despised, killed, resurrected, and then crowned king in heaven. This motif could have been taken from Isaiah 52 and 53 as well, that contained an innocent and righteous man will be humiliated and then killed by the wicked, right? And we're going to talk about that one in a minute, though. But exalted and triumphant. Now, this was understood as atonement martyrdom framework applying to dying, rising heroes in other cultures. But what we learn about the servant of Isaiah 52 to 53 is that he will die to atone for the sins in his death. Now, this was only Christian interpretation. Jews know this to be a statement about Israel, not Jesus. In, in addition to, same thing as in Daniel 9, this is also about Onias III, who we talked about, who was the righteous priest, right? And who was murdered by his peers, by the Hellenistic Jews. And Onias III was the one that tried to bring God's, God's way back into the temple, only to be murdered. You can, you can go back and listen to that particular episode if you like. But there are other pieces of this literature that are also found throughout Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Melchizedek Scroll that helps tie these messages together. We also have Daniel 9 where the author is condemning the elite Jews for their particular corruption. And we're talking about the group of Hellenized Greek Jews that were enjoying the lavishness of the, of the, um, of the Greek customs. But as I pointed out earlier in the previous episode, we can surmise that the elite and corrupt Jews were the elders who refused to transition from Hellenized Judaic religion to the Yahwist religion of monotheism. Remember, Zeus was all over the temple by this point. So they were evil and they were corrupt and obviously not upholding the laws of the commandments and usury. And of course, the sacrificial killing of the lamb every year. And then the anointed one will be put to death and the end will come like a flood. 
And then last, Zechariah 3, identifying a son of God in opposition to Satan, wrongly executed, rises again to atone for the world's sin. So these apocalyptic scriptures were written by authors to ease the pain and the suffering of the Jews during the captivity and even afterwards. Exportation and then further slavery. You know, some were sent off the toil in the mines of Egypt. But the idea of a Savior coming to destroy the enemy and forgive the Jews for their sins with the future of a final temple to be built in heaven was very appealing to the Jews at this particular time. Remember, we are talking about an apocalyptic culture. The end of the world was imminent. Paul preached this. But for these pre-Pauline Jews, these pre-Christian Jews, the sectarian group of Messianic Jews were anticipating the end and the end coming near. And we talked about that in previous episodes too. And we see this type of thinking all throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls. The end was imminent. It was coming. And a lot of scholars believe that even the attack on Rome by the Jewish rebels was about accelerating this end-of-times theme. So moving forward, in the first century of the Common Era, we have the first and most important writer in Christian teachings, the Pauline Epistles. Remember from previous chapter, Paul only ever sees Jesus in visions and hallucinations and dreams Jesus is preexistent. There is no virgin story, no birth story. It's not for another couple of decades, possibly 30 years, does Mark come into the scene and places Jesus on earth. And then after this, the fall of the second temple in 70. Finally, we get to the day of Christmas. Ho, ho, ho! December 25th, and why we celebrate it on this day. In the third century Rome, Sol Invictus, or the Unconquered Son, was the official god of the Roman Empire. And on December 25th, 274 CE, the Roman Emperor Aurelian made it the official cult, alongside all the other Roman cults. The new god, Sol Invictus, was favored by emperors after and beyond Aurelian, and even appeared on their coins. The last inscription of Sol Invictus dates sometime around 387 CE. Even Constantine left it on his coins, all the way up until the last part of his reign. However, there were still temples built, songs sung, games created and celebrated every year on December 25th for Sol Invictus Day as well as the winter solstice as the pagans celebrated new birth and growth in the coming spring. But I think St. Augustine in the 6th century CE can probably be connected to the widespread celebration of Christmas as the day to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ in large parts of England because he introduced Christianity to the regions run by Anglo-Saxons, of course. And so St. Augustine was sent by Pope Gregory the Great in Rome. So Western countries celebrated Christmas on December 25th. First Europe, and then the rest of the world. All right, that's all I've got for today. I actually knocked this one out in one afternoon. Um, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1. This one took four hours to record, so kind of get an idea how long it takes to do this because, you know, there's so many interruptions. I stop and take lunch, gotta, you know, hit the bathroom and things like that. 
you have to re-record because I stuttered or burped or farted. Anyway, so I hope that you enjoyed this one. I told you it was going to be kind of fun and interesting to go back and look at all four of the gospel stories. But I really love the, the um, Jesus Ben Strada. I think that one's a very fun one. And um, just looking at the apocalypse of Zerubbabel and pretty cool stuff to look at. And obviously, you can drill down deeper if you want to. Um, Wikipedia's got a pretty large file on uh, the Apocalypse of Zerubbabel, and you can go in deeper on that. There's obviously books on this subject, and so you can go crazy. You can go totally crazy on your one, but um, that's enough to share for this particular podcast. But um, coming up next week, now I want to start getting into that 27th book of the New Testament. And that is, of course, the sign of the Apocalypse. We're talking about the book of Revelation, all right? And I'm probably going to bring in some theme about why Christians today are so adverse and so opposed to wanting to take the vaccine. And so I'm going to pull some of that in because they refer to um, getting the shot as partaking in number of the beast, you know, the numbers are on your credit cards, you know, and all that kind of good stuff. Um, Anyway, so I think we're going to address that. I think it's a good time to take a look at it. And that might even help you guys in some of your conversations with your believer friends that don't want to get the shot because they think that they're accepting Satan into their lives. We don't want that, right? So we need to convince them and tell them what the real story was, how it was really applied at the time, when it was written, and um, why it was written. Who was written by So, pretty important stuff, and I hope that you like it. That one probably going to be another hour and a half, two-hour episode, but I'm looking forward to recording it, guys. Um, And if you are interested and you've got the essay, that one begins on page 570. All right, everybody, peace out. Be just fantastic Christians. Be amazing atheists. And whatever else you are, if you're Hindu or um, Islam, hey, I love you guys all the same. Everybody have a fantastic weekend. And God dang it, is it hot or is it hot where you guys are? It's like 95 right here in my office. I don't have the air running today, but um, I'm trying to be cheap. Anyway, love you. Bye. This has been a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production.